Welcome to Masterclass, a collaboration between the virtual world diplomacy community and Brotherboard's Diplomacy Dojo. The host for this week's episode is David Hood. David Hood is a hobby legend and hosts DixieCon, the world's longest running annual diplomacy event. Anyway, it is about noon, and uh, David, I've been asking to do this for a couple of months, and we found a time that works for him, so I'm very thankful that he took the time out of his busy schedule to speak to us about a subject that he found interesting. All I really know about the subject is what the synopsis that David Hood gave me, so I'm going to learn a lot today. Uh, you probably all know David Hood from the DBN broadcasts. He has been a player of diplomacy since the 80s. He has spoken about his experience learning the game of diplomacy on various DBN media. And uh, he is the leader of DixieCon. Thank you for doing this for us, David. Sure, Natty. I appreciate the introduction. And yes, I, I am uh, the director of DixieCon. I did start playing diplomacy in 1984 and been running DixieCon since 1987, which is a face-to-face -face tournament in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that's the last weekend in May. So two weeks from now, we're going to do the second annual virtual version of DixieCon. Hopefully, we'll be back live next next year. But if you're interested in playing in the virtual tournament, we've got three rounds of diplomacy, and we've got four rounds of speedboat with a speedboat final. And we also have other gaming plus, you guessed it, virtual barbecue. If you're interested in any of that, go to www.dixiecon.com for more information. But today, my topic is not that. Today, my topic is resisting groupthink meta. And I'll tell you why I wanted to talk about this subject today, which is that I was, I was participating in a series of messages some weeks ago about the, uh, what the Eastern powers ought to be doing in diplomacy in relation to the fact that there's four of them and there's you know three Western powers. What do you do to, to, to resolve your side of the board quickly and all that? And there was a very good player who said, well, you should always kill Turkey. Our AI should always get together and kill Turkey in every game. And I thought, hmm, I actually can't let that one go because I am a big believer that the word always should always be avoided. So I think always avoid saying always is the right answer to the meta. Now, what do I mean by meta? The meta is what the current hobby thinks folk ought to do when they're playing diplomacy, whether for a particular power or a particular alliance or a particular you know, tactical trick or whatever the, whatever the current thinking is, is what we call the meta. And what I'm talking about in this in this little uh, masterclass is resisting the idea that because everyone you know thinks something, that ought to be the right answer. Because I'm here to tell you that the RAI should not always kill Turkey. You should not always avoid taking Belgium. And there are people that will argue this to you, that, that taking Belgium is a bad idea, that you should instead offer it to somebody else in the West and use that goodwill to build upon for alliance stuff. And that's fine. That's not a terrible argument. But it is not true that you should always avoid taking Belgium. And for those of you that have watched me play France, you know that if anything, I'm always wanting to take Belgium. But even that's not right. Sometimes the right answer is to give Belgium to Germany or give Belgium to England or whatever, or leave Belgium open or bounce there. 
it's it's totally situational, which is a word that I've used a lot over the last 12 months of of virtual of the virtual diplomacy world, but I still believe in it because it's true. You know, lately I've and I think I said on a DBN broadcast, you should you should almost always cede Sweden to Russia if you're Germany. Not always, but you should almost always do it. I like to do it paired with some kind of deal with the Russians. I will cede Sweden to you if, and then you fill in the blank, but it doesn't even have to be that. But what I'm saying is, and I think you get the idea, you should not always do anything. The perspectives here that I'm getting ready to offer are three. There's a historical perspective to what I'm saying. There is a sociological perspective to what I'm saying. And there is what I would call a developmental perspective. In other words, your development as a player. And some of what I'm going to talk about today is not actually strictly limited to diplomacy. And you'll see you'll see why I cared about this subject so much, because I believe this is a subject, groupthink, that is a real menace to good thinking in life and good decision-making in life, not just in diplomacy. But the fact that it applies to life doesn't mean it also doesn't apply to diplomacy. So let's go into what I would say my first perspective is, which is historical. And this is something that I have the ability to say more than some other folks, just because I'm old. I've been here a long time. I've been playing diplomacy a very long time. And I can give you a perspective here that you, with which you may not be as familiar. Sometimes we get into the idea that, well, everyone else thinks such and such, and that must be true. Well, it depends on when you ask. Because when I first got into the hobby, the weaklings were Austria and Italy and Germany. And the strength, the strong powers that everybody was always wanting to play were England and France and Turkey, and sometimes Russia. That, that, that's right before I got into the hobby in the 70s. In the early 80s, Russia was seen as the strongest power in diplomacy, if you can believe that. And then that started waning. And then it became the, the wicked witches, the England and the Turks. And so at some point, somebody realized, wait a minute, France is also really strong because they have such an offensive and defensive capability and their flexibility is so high. You, this, this issue about what people think the right answer is goes all the way back to the uh, Eddie Bersan days of the late 60s and early 70s when he himself came up with the whole Lepanto invasion idea. Until then... Austria and Italy pretty much fought all the time. And so his solution to that was, how do I do something with the Italians other than either going after Austria or going after France? And the answer was, go after Turkey. And that's how he came up with the concept of convoying to Syria as a way to get, you know, to break or crack open the Turkish egg. Now, so when I got into the hobby, AI was fighting again. This was in the mid-80s. They were fighting again a lot. There was a lot of hedgehog openings. There were a lot of you know, the Austrians just holding in Trieste and all kinds of stuff. And you will sometimes see this online even today. In certain places online, that is still the meta, or at least has become the meta again. That Austria and Italy, being the only powers with home centers that are next to each other, are destined for conflict. When I got into the hobby in the mid-'80s, and when I, we started playing in our diplomacy club, AI became friends most of the time. And it led to a lot of AI versus RT stalemates in the East. So at some point, that began to wane. And it began to wax more that you do an AstroTurk and you jump against the Italy, Italians or the, and or the Russians immediately as an AT. Or you end up with the Italians just plowing into Austria and hoping 
that they can convince either Russia or Turkey to stab the other so that the Italy doesn't become the next, you know, target of the juggernaut. My point on, and then there was the key opening that came in at some point. And sometimes people mistakenly say key Lepanto. That's really combining two openings that sometimes got combined in the old days and sometimes did not. All the key opening was was intended to do, which was like named after a guy named Jeff Key, was to put the Italian army into Serbia so that it could be start being useful again. You know, the Italian army is really the problem with the opening Italian position. It can't do a whole lot unless it goes to Munich or unless it goes to Piedmont and tries to get into Marseille or unless it plows into Austria. So the key opening was yet another idea of how to avoid that by putting the Italian army on the front line against the Turks. My point is not to get in those weeds. My point is to say that just because you think folk believe something right now doesn't mean they've always believed it, and they're probably not going to believe it two or three years from now. Just historically, that appears to be true. So don't get, don't yourself get in the rut of thinking that something ought to always happen the way it happens. I wanted to use last night as an example. If you were watching VDL, you will see that the folks at the, in the VDL games last night did not do the same things over and over again. They were basically doing what I'm advocating, which is thinking outside the box and doing different things. And you, if you watch the coverage, you saw me say several times, I've been playing this game and watching this game for 30-something you know, years, and I've never seen this, which was fun. I've noted here on my uh, slide the concept of the sea lion or the kraken or the great northern. The great northern is England and Russia working together. At different times in my hobby career, these particular alliances have also waxed and waned. When I first got in the hobby, the sea lion was out, and people primarily did not go after England, which is surprising when you think about it because England was seen as so strong. But it was really more a question of EF or EG or triples, you know, the, the the scourge of the Western triple was true even when I got into the hobby, not just now. But the Kraken, the idea of an IT alliance actually working is something that has often been on the outs and often seen as silly. And of course, if you were watching last night, you saw Ed Sullivan and Morgante Pell do an IT all the way to a 1414. And that even it surprised even me, as those of you that were watching last night saw. I thought Ed was going to be on the odd man, you know, was going to be on the outs, and that turned out to not be true. So there's lots of things that used to be prevalent and are not now, and vice versa. There's lots of things that are prevalent, you know, now that used to not be prevalent. So I would argue from a historical point of view that you're selling yourself short if you think upon your whatever years you've got in the hobby that you've got this all figured out. And that, for example, the RAI ought to always kill the Turks. I mean, maybe, sometimes. But certainly not always. From a historical point of view, it's a it's a, it's short sighted to think that you've got it all figured out. Now this leads me to a to, to a related concept, which I sometimes hear people talk about, which is there's lots of old strategy and tactics advice available online, but a lot of it is wrong. And I agree with that. I agree that even though I enjoy going back and looking at the old articles, I actually wrote some of the older articles from the 80s and 90s. But even now when I go back and read them, I think, you know, even that at the time was a little bit of a bold statement to make, and it has since become irrelevant or uh, not quite true all the time. So my advice when you're reading to get, and I do think reading articles and stuff is a, is a good way to learn the game and, and pick up advice, but you do have to pick and choose. You do not have to, and of course, I, I may be preaching to the converted here, 
But you don't have to, just because somebody that you respect or somebody whose name you recognize said that such and such should always be the opening for the Germans or something, doesn't mean that you have to accept that. It might have been, and you need to put it in, historical perspective, that that's what people during that particular phase of the hobby, that's what the meta believed, or at least that's what that speaker believed. And I would, you know, you can get good good tips from some of that stuff, but I would encourage you to pick and choose on that and not accept any of it at face value, not accept any of it 100%. And that also goes for those that might want to give what we used to call S&T, strategy and tactics advice. I think that's important, and I encourage you to do that. But always try to keep a little humility about the conclusions to which you have come based upon your experience or your education in the hobby. You might be right, but two years from now, folk might think you're wrong for reasons A, B, or C. And so I would, again, say just because the hobby believes something now, that's groupthink. You do not have to give in to that. In fact, I would encourage you not to give in to that. So let's move on to the second perspective or the second reason. So sociological perspective. Now, at this point, I'm making a much broader point about groupthink and why it's a bad idea, and thus why it is a bad idea for diplomacy. If you've been involved in organizational issues, which I have been all my legal career, you will see a lot of problems that result from the fact that you've got a lot of people in a place making decisions, trying to organize data, trying to understand data and act upon it, who all think the same way and thus they are leading themselves to the wrong conclusion. That danger or that concern is something that goes all the way back. I mentioned the team of rivals here in my uh, slide, and that's because that's a, the famous book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. His way to try to avoid groupthink, or at least try to bring people together from different perspectives, was that he, he actually put on in his, in his presidential cabinet folks that ran against him during the 1860 primaries or during the 1860 election. He actually put a Democrat, for God's sake, on his, uh, that was Edwin Stanton, on his cabinet, even though he was, he was a Republican and was the first Republican president. His thinking was that if he had different people telling him different things from different perspectives, his decision-making would be better. Now, arguably, it actually did not work in his case. I actually disagree with Doris Kearns Goodwin about how well it worked. I think it actually didn't work well at all. But that's because he didn't do a good enough job of keeping people rowing in the same direction, even though their oars looked different and came from different backgrounds. He, 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 did, he had trouble keeping them from conflicting with each other. So I'm not suggesting that everything about this is right, but I am suggesting that innovation is actually what you want when you're making good decisions and when you're coming to conclusions about data, and being a stick in the mud is what you're trying to avoid. And it's easier to be a stick in the mud if everybody's got the same stick in the same mud. So how do we avoid that? Or actually, let me give you some examples. It used to be true that IBM ruled the world of technology. And it used to be true that AT&T, the world of media, or of communications media, I'm sorry, it used to be that you had lots of big companies, Xerox and other things, uh, banks, certain banks that thought they owned banking, and somebody came along later and came up with a better mousetrap in all of these examples. Um, I'm particularly, um, particularly sensitive to the banking one because it was actually North Carolinians 
that changed the banking world, if you don't know that, and made it much more innovative. And that's why Charlotte, North Carolina, is now the second banking center in the United States instead of much bigger cities. Because somebody who really wasn't part of the in crowd came in and said, you know what, we should do this, we should do interstate banking a different way. We should innovate. We should get some of these regulations out of the way, which they did, and it totally changed the world of banking. So there's others, other examples you could come up with. You know, you just all you have to do is think about which companies now are ruling the roost versus which companies we thought 15 years ago had a monopoly. You know, at this point, the whole concept of a monopoly case by the government against Microsoft seems goofy. Because as we know, Microsoft lost its way in a lot of ways, lost its its technological innovation sense, and lost out to other companies. And so even if we now think, well, Apple and Google and Facebook and all these people, they're they're gonna rule the world forever, I doubt ten years from now ten years from now we're gonna be saying that. Because it is so easy to for everyone be thinking the same way, and particularly if everyone looks the same, and this is where I bring in the concept of diversity which I actually think is is important, not just in some kind of political sense or sociological sense, but in an organizational sense. It's really important to be thinking about things from different perspectives. And the best way to do that is to have people that come from different backgrounds and have different experiences. It's a great way to, to, to cause strength in your organization. And I would argue strength in our hobby, in our diplomacy hobby. You may have noticed that there have been a lot of efforts to really recruit and and promote diversity in our hobby in the last couple of years, which I absolutely and totally support. And this is one reason why I support it, because you're going to you're going to need to get different perspectives to have a more educated and, frankly, a better view of the diplomacy meta. I've told this story before, sometimes back in the old days before the Internet, it was really exciting when you found a sub-hobby, a sub-diplomacy hobby that you didn't know about, and that used to happen all the time. You would end up with a bunch of people from Austin, Texas, or, or San Antonio, I think it was, who played together. We didn't ever hear about them, and all of a sudden, one of them realized there was a wider hobby because it was by mail, so it was a hit-or-miss thing to actually find such people. But once you did and they started coming to face-to-face tournaments, they would come with completely different ideas on what to do in the English Channel or whether to give the Russians Sweden or what the Italian opening ought to be. They'd come with completely different ideas, and it was exciting to not just accept them, but to try to incorporate their thinking or their perspectives into the hobby as a whole. That is even more true now, I would argue, in the world of the Internet where we have such more opportunities for for connectivity and for bringing different types of people into our, quote, organization, end quote, or, you know, our hobby. So to sort of conclude this, this sub-point, you can see here the, the contrast I'm giving between the ossified, calcified, dying skeleton of a diplomacy player, I'll let you decide who you think that is, versus the organic, growing, healthy body of a diplomacy player, which is what we should be striving to be. So if you ever feel yourself getting ready to be the old man on the lawn, you know, who says, get those kids off my lawn, because you already know how the lawn's supposed to look, and you already know how what what height the, the grass is supposed to be, and you already know that the lawn is better off without people, and you don't need new information, and you don't need new ideas. You are the dying skeleton, and you need to resist that and, and, try, and try not to react when somebody says X, and you say, oh, oh, it's always not X. Before you say that, 
give what the other person is saying a chance to percolate in your brain and see if they might have something to say about diplomacy, might have something to say about the meta or the hobby that you might need to hear. The, the other thing that I really encourage people to do is to seek out new opponents and new ways of doing things. If you always play with the same people, you're also making a mistake because not only is it less fun, and we're going to get to that in a minute with my third point, but also you're losing the opportunity to learn. You know, it, it is certainly true in my experience that I have learned a lot by watching people play diplomacy and playing with them. And sometimes you learn what not to do, but that's also an important lesson. But you also learn things to do that you had never thought of. Here is an example. Until we just started the virtual world and I was watching more people play from different perspectives other than just face-to-face, I realized that I had been missing out on the whole, you know, let's loan Trieste to the Italians thing. That is not something that was done in the face-to-face world traditionally and has now become part of the, I would argue, part of the meta, at least the current meta, for AI relationships in a way that I hadn't really thought of before. You know, even even me, and I would argue especially me, somebody who's been around a long time and thus thinks they know something, really ought to just pry their brain open and try to be open to new perspectives and new ideas. It is good for you. It's good for you organizationally. It's good for you sociologically. And it's good for you personally. Which leads me to my third perspective, which I'm calling the developmental perspective. It just ain't no fun. If everybody thinks the same way about the same stuff and always opens the same way, I mean, I encourage people to try new openings, even if you think they're a little goofy. And if anybody's played with me, you know that. I I enjoy doing different openings. I enjoy sometimes, again, not very often, but sometimes supporting Vienna to Galicia with Budapest and stranding the Russian army in Warsaw for the all-important fall turn. I've got two guys in Romania. I mean, who knows what I can do in that situation? Yes, I'm foregoing Serbia, potentially, but you try new things and see what happens. I would argue it's not just good for your, you know, for you sociologically or historically to realize that, you know, that, that the meta may not be right. It's good for the fun of the hobby. Do you always want to eat one flavor of Lifesavers, or do you sometimes want to try, I don't know, the wintergreen flavor? You know, it's if you're always interested in doing one thing all the time, you're never going to try something that you might realize you like. If you think that football should always be played on grass, then maybe you don't realize that sometimes it's worthwhile to play it on AstroTurf. And now you know the cut I'm making. If you think the AT Alliance never works, try an AstroTurk and see if it works. Answer, it does sometimes work. You could make it work. It, it takes some, some, some work to make it last a long time, but even that can be done if you, if, you, if you do it correctly. You may think that only one mythological creature is fun, but there's a kraken out there. Not just the Leviathan, but the kraken is fun. Just watch the game last night again with Morgante and Ed. So... Not only do I think it is good for the hobby, it is good for you personally to have more fun. I mean, would you want to play a game where you make all the same moves all the time and everybody in response makes all the same moves all the time? Who wants to play that? You know, there's lots of games like that in the world. The fun thing about diplomacy is that you can try new things, do new things. It's really a game not about the pieces. It's a game about the personalities. And so because it's a game about personalities and psychology, Lots of different things can work. It just depends on your ability to sell them, your ability to work with other people, etc. Let's talk about 
one aspect of this that I think is really unfortunate. For example, the current meta, or at least the meta about a month ago, was if you got turkey, you're screwed because turkey sucks. Everybody attacks turkey. Nobody wants turkey. Nobody wants them around, et cetera. Now, again, we've seen a little bit of pushback on that in the last couple of months, which I think is 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 healthy. But it's also, think about it, that's no fun. If you think, for example, in gunboat, and sometimes this is the meta in the current world of gunboat or speedboat, that turkey's terrible. And, and you know, they're never going to do well because nobody's ever going to let them do well. Okay, that's not any fun. Why would you want to play a game in which you get one out of seven chance of not having any fun? And the same can sometimes be true for the Russians. Sometimes think the Russians are, are out of the, you know, out of contention in gunboat from the beginning. No, they're not. They shouldn't be. It depends on the way you play it. It depends on the way other people play it. So I would encourage you to not think that way and instead think about, wouldn't it be more fun if the hobby tried X, Y, or Z? And you can be part of the one that tries it. Now, what do I mean by geography is not destiny? Basically, what I mean is, if you think that Germany ought to be played in X fashion because you read, you know, you watched... You know, Doug Moore's thing, by the way, Doug Moore does not believe that, but if you watch Doug Moore's video and you think Germany should only be played in one way, no, that is not correct. Even in diplomacy, geography is not destiny. Now, geography does tell you something. If you're playing England, you're playing that very different than you're playing Austria because the geography is, in fact, different. And if you're in the East versus the West, even, it's it's different. And if you are Russia, where your geography really is unique because of straddling the stalemate line with your home centers and the, and the way that the stalemate line works with respect to the Russian geography is unique, but it doesn't tell you exactly what Russia ought to do. It doesn't tell you exactly how Russia ought to end up. And again, if you feel that way, you're probably feeling the wrong way. So pry that brain back open and, and think about other perspectives that other players may have. Now, my, my, my final point on this I'm going to spend a little time on because I think it's uh, it, perhaps the most important thing. We sometimes think that diplomacy is a board game about pieces moving around a map of Europe, which, of course, it is. But that is only one aspect of the game. The game is also about flexibility, creativ- creativity, and spontaneity. Sometimes what the, what's on the map is not quite as important as whether you are simpatico with a particular neighbor from a psychological or alliance or negotiation point of view. Sometimes it, the tempo is what matters more than what you know, whether or not you can guess correctly between Warsaw and Moscow or something. Sometimes the tempo is actually what matters the most. So we, we have a, sometimes a danger of elevating moves or elevating alliance structure choice even to be the most important decision that you make. And it can be, it often can be, it often is the most important decisions you can make, but they are, again, not the only decisions that you make in diplomacy. And if you think that, then you have given into and are adopting a groupthink meta that you should avoid. You can, again, I think some of the games last night are a good example of this. There was some goofy crap last night that was fun to watch, and some of that goofiness totally worked even when I didn't think it was going to, from a commentator point of view, it totally worked because that's the way the negotiation had gone. You know, if you can sell the ice to the Eskimos, as they used to say, then you can sell the concept of the Turkish fleet ending up in Norwegian and eventually ending up, 
you know, dealing with Norway and St. Pete from the north, et cetera. That, that was weird, but it was something that would, that sort of worked in that particular setting because that's the way the negotiations went. So again, I don't want to repeat myself here, but these are basically life skills that I think are, are also game skills. The concept of being flexible, not believing that there's always one way to do things, is a way to be more successful in diplomacy and in life. Being creative, you know, trying to think, well, I, I know I've, I have always thought that this was the right answer about English Channel. Let me think about this. Maybe there is a different answer about this. Maybe there's a different answer about whether I convoy here or don't convoy here. Maybe there's a different answer on how many armies I build versus fleets, even though I'm used to doing it one way. Maybe there's something else here. Let me think about that a little bit and be intentional in my possible creativity. And then spontaneity. You know, the, I think it was Eisenhower who said that the, the, you know, the battle plan never survives first contact with the enemy. And it's true. And I, I actually preach this to young lawyers with respect to jury trials and, and arguments in front of judges as well. You need to have a good plan. You need to have it, you know, well-researched, well-thought-out, in writing, whatever helps you remember it. And then you need to be able to deviate from it as needed. You know, you may land on the beaches and realize that Omaha's got a hell of a lot more German defense than Utah, and so you need to maybe you push the Utah invasion more than the Omaha invasion, to use a D-Day example. But there's other examples that you could use that are outside of the context of war, just out, put it in business form or in diplomacy form. You may think you've got a great plan, and then somebody else does something goofy that makes you should make you reassess whether your plan is right. And in order to be able to do that, you need to not be in groupthink all the time. You need to realize that you can, you can have your own ideas, and your own ideas have value. Every single opening that you've ever heard of, somebody came up with. And usually multiple people came up with it in multiple places at the same time. Sort of a, you know, the guy in Germany came up with calculus at the same time that, uh, that Newton did. It's just Newton's the one that got the, got the press. There's lots of folks that come up with different openings all the time. And why couldn't it be you, ladies and gentlemen of diplomacy? And the answer is it could be. I'm not saying that you go out and try to find some kind of goofy thing that you want to put your name on. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you come up with something, it may very well be a very good idea. And most ideas come from being spontaneous and reacting, being flexible and being creative, reacting to something that's happening on the board. I would also point out that when you're trying to become a better player in diplomacy, if you don't flex a particular diplomacy muscle, because you don't think people do that, it's not part of the meta, it's not part of the way people play now, that muscle will atrophy. Just like any other muscle, you need to exercise it. If you're always preparing for the last war, the last game that you played, without realizing that the, the, the ground may have shifted underneath you since then with those particular players or that that particular situation was unique, you will end up fighting the last war and losing. And again, to use a historical example, the French in 1870 fought a war of, you know, they had strong points that they assumed that the Germans, the Prussians would not be able to, and the Prussians just moved around them. They just, they, they had flexibility. The Prussians had flexibility. The French were ossified, to use a word I used earlier. They were stuck in one particular think, uh, thought. So then when 1914 rolled around, the French said, oh, we've learned from this. We've learned that 
that what you need to do is have mobility and you need to be able to attack and we don't need to worry about defense as much. And guess what? The ground had completely shifted by 1914, and now in 1914, it was defense that mattered. And the French wasted a lot of troops and a lot of personnel doing uh, sort of bonsai attacks in the early stages of the war. They were trying to refight the 1870 war the way the Prussians did, and that by then, the, the situation had reversed. And so they lost, you know, they, they could not, they lost a bunch of men they didn't need to lose. And then you get to 1940 and they made exactly the same mistake. They assumed that the, the lessons of World War I were still in effect and we needed to go back to having strong points and trench warfare and all that. And the Germans in 1940 just took their tanks and ran around them and said, nope. And the French soldiers hardly ever, you know, a lot of them were stuck on the Maginot Line, never even got back to be participate in the, in the fight before, the, before, the, before France surrendered. So do not fight the last war. It's okay to try to learn lessons from the last game that you played, the last 10 games that you played, the last 10 games you watched on DBN. I'm not suggesting you don't do that. You absolutely should do that. But you should not assume that just because something was done one way, it should be always be done that way. And you know why? Because the word always should be banished, always banished, from your dip vocabulary. Just don't use it because it ain't it ain't right. It ain't true. Always, and you'll see I'm jokingly using the word myself, always resist what I call closed-minded groupthink. And always, always ignore anything that Hackenbrack ever tells you about diplomacy. And I'm saying that because he's not on this thing, so I can talk freely. Just ignore anything that Bill Hackenbrack has ever said or written. Going to stop the screen share. That is way more than anybody's ever wanted to hear from me. So I want to hear from somebody else, either a comment or a question. David, it seems to me that the meta is speeding up a bit with uh, DBN broadcasts in that uh, people see what works in one month's games and try it in the next month, and then the meta shifts. And I'm wondering if you think the meta is speeding up with DBN or if, if that is just something that I am imagining because I'm, I'm relatively new to the larger hobby. Uh, Natty, I think you're absolutely right. And I think last night, again, if you didn't watch last night, you need to go watch it because it was really a lot of fun, really fun game. But I think last night was a good example because you saw people trying things and doing things last night that they hadn't been doing or that other people hadn't been doing in previous uh, iterations, uh, you know, like six months ago or something. And I think that's either because they were watching what somebody did last month or they're watching what somebody did in a game that they're playing online or watch what some. And I, I do think that the connectivity of the modern hobby, particularly with DBN, means that information flows a lot faster than it used to, which should, in fact, speed up the churning, what I call the churning of the meta, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned, because that, that will, will help us avoid having these sort of entrenched positions that we that we sometimes get into as diplomacy players and think we've got everything figured out. And I'm as guilty as this as anybody else. I mean, anybody who's watched me on Commentate knows. But I, ha I try my best to keep an open mind about what somebody's doing, but it's hard not to have an opinion. But having that opinion and not being willing to listen to other people's opinions, and, and frankly, you know, here's an example from last night. I thought Ed really was going to get sort of screwed out of being in the top of his of that last game the the game that had the the IT crack and, and I was wrong about that 
And I'm willing to say that I was wrong about what Morgante was willing to do there. And I think it's important for us to to have a little, I think I said this earlier, to have a little humility about our diplomacy. Uh, even those of us that think we have some contact with what's going on need to realize that we probably don't. Uh, you know, as, as Commander Data once said in a famous episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, the beginning of wisdom is the statement, I do not know. And we just should not think that we always know everything. David, uh, uh, this has been uh, Kalman. I think that's an interesting jumping off point. I think it's a very good point. But I think another uh, factor that comes into play here is players being a little deferential and, and especially less experienced players, but also even, even people who know what they're doing uh, a little bit more thinking, God, you know, I don't really know the best moves, but I watched this, this thing on DBN and, and this really good player did this thing. Um, so maybe I'll just copy that. So I know it's a very difficult uh, question because it's different for each person, but um, the how of it is is very difficult of how to avoid the group thing, even if you want to. I'm not sure if you have any comments on that. Well, I do want to make sure I'm not being misinterpreted here, which is a possibility. I'm not saying you shouldn't copy what other people do sometimes. In fact, that is a good way to learn. You know, we all know from being young young children and growing up that a lot of what we learned was by mimicking, copying people around us. But at some point, and I'm not, and as you point out, Ben, it's different for different people. At some point, you shouldn't blindly do what someone else does just because you respect them or thought they had a good game. It's okay to copy things, but also keep in mind that you can pick and choose. You know, you you may decide that the way that worked out for that particular player in that game was was actually more unique to the personalities in that game. And you may decide that as you're copying it, as you're trying it, you say, well, crap, this isn't working the way I expected. I wonder why. It's not because you're a bad player necessarily. It's not because you're learning the game and other people are st already have the game figured out. It's because each game situation actually is somewhat different. So even I get surprised a lot. So I, all I'm saying, Ben, is I think that you're bringing up a good point, and I think it's okay to copy what other people do and try to emulate them. But be be critical about that and be willing to pick and choose what you're copying. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, as you've said, things have shifted so many times and there's been so much study of this game. Just because somebody hasn't seen something done before doesn't mean it hasn't been done before and hasn't been considered a good idea before. I did a French opening yesterday that I just thought of the other day, but apparently it's the Lisbon Leapfrog and it is in an article from 1990 that I found on the Internet after somebody pointed it out. So the way these things go in circles is very interesting and certainly appreciate your contribution to like bringing all the history into the, into the, the conversation. Well, Ben, that's, I mean, that's a good point that I made earlier about the invention of calculus. You know, lots of things get invented in lots of different places and we independently, <clears throat> and we don't, we don't always know it. The first thing I wanted to say is I've really, really enjoyed this presentation. I've listened to a lot of the master classes afterwards, and I, I just appreciate the preparation and the thought that went into it. So thank you. And uh, I'm not going to ask all my questions at once. Uh, but my first question is, do you think DBN at all contributes to groupthink or the meta uh, as we watch it? Yes. Yes, I do. And I do, th and I have always thought that was a little bit of a risk. If you'll notice, and I don't always remember to do this, but I try very intentionally when I'm being a commentator to say, now he may have a good reason for to have done this that I'm not seeing, as opposed to me saying, well, that's a stupid move. 
Because, first of all, I, he may be right and I may be wrong. And I'm willing to say that up front and, and as many times as, as people need to hear it, because it's true. But secondly, we need to have a little more grace with each other about, you know, and, and this is true on DBN, just like it's true in any other discussion setting. It is easy and kind of fun to sort of poke at what somebody did. And, you know, as long as you're doing it in a joking way and everybody realizes we're on good faith, that's fine. But what we don't want to do is get somebody try something and we on DBN or, again, in any other context, sort of shout it down as being bad. And now that person, A, is not going to try anything new again, and B, has had their feelings hurt in a way that's totally unnecessary. This also happens within a game. And I'm not calling anybody out here because, again, this is something I'm sure has happened in, in a game that I've been playing in. But when you are tempted in a game to say to your you know, alliance partner or your enemy or whoever you're talking to over on the side of the of the room, uh, either virtually or, or face-to-face, you're tempted to say, well, that was idiotic. What the hell did you do that for? Or that was a really stupid thing to do. Once you're tempted to do that, and maybe that works for you, but it's not going to work most of the time, and it's also really, really bad for the development of the hobby and us as individual players. So I think it is important when you're watching DBN, when you're you know reading an article, when you're you know listening to a podcast that Brother Board's put out, Brother Board knows a lot about this game, and I'm here to tell you that. But but I'm sure that he would tell you that you don't have to accept everything he's saying at face value, and you probably shouldn't, because just because one player, uh, one hobby personality, knows a lot about the game. You shouldn't get into the, you know, making it into some kind of, well, if he says it, it must be true. Or if she says it, it's got to be true. Not That is actually not true uh, because there have been lots of players that have come and gone, lots of hobby personalities that have come and gone that think they had this game figured out. And they may have had a lot of it figured out, but there's always room for new ideas and innovation, or at least I hope there is, because I said it in my set of my talk Organizational strength actually requires innovation. So I find it really interesting, you know, what you said, because I get criticized a lot, but I'm a little older by a standard deviation than than most of the other newer players. And I'll put myself in the newer player category, but I'm used to getting critiqued all the time, particularly by my wife and in my occupation. So the, the DBN stuff where it says if he had done this, you know, or comments on how I could have done something better are always valuable. Uh, but the number one thing is everyone, at least in my mind, should be themselves. Because if you're trying to conform yourself to some idea of what the game needs or the, the meta of the game, that's really dangerous. If you're yourself, whether you make mistakes or not, you're going to improve. And Ed, I think that's an excellent point. I really do. Uh, and, and I think in addition to that, in addition to the concept of improving as a player, it's just more fun. It's more fun to be able to be yourself. And that's what we're doing this for is fun. And it's more fun to be yourself without taking the chance that somebody's going to say, that's not how the diplomacy gods have dictated this move should happen. Well, guess what? There ain't no diplomacy gods. Maybe we're the Klingons. We go and kill our own gods and then we don't have any. And that's kind of the situation I hope that we're in as a hobby. We shouldn't have any hobby gods. We shouldn't have any diplomacy gods. We should all be on the same footing, even those of us that have been playing 37 years versus people who have been playing 37 days. We all have an equal 
opportunity to play, and we all have an equal right to play the way we want to play without unnecessary criticism. And so I'm glad that you brought up DBN because if if it ever looks like any of us on DBN are unnecessarily criticizing someone, we need to know that. We need to try to avoid that. We need to change our behavior and because that, that is certainly not our intent. Our intent, honestly, is to entertain, is to entertain and educate at the same time. I don't mind the criticism at all uh, because I am I understand that you're not listening to the negotiations. Right. So, I mean, I have better information than you do, but I don't have better tactics objectively than you or Brother Board or other people. I don't know, Ed. You look like you got your tactics down pretty well from my from my perspective. Uh, anyway, who's got who's got another question or comment about this subject or, hey, or any other? Hey, David. It's Brian, I got a question for you. I think in addition to DBN, one of the main areas that I'm seeing a lot of diversity of play coming in is from the uh, sheer volume of speedboat. We've got so many players that are playing just getting rep after rep after rep and it's not quite the same game uh but how do you integrate like lessons from a speedboat type environment into a face-to-face or virtual face-to-face or even extended deadline press environment good question brian i actually think that the danger of groupthink is even is even more in the speedboat and gunboat world right now than it is in regular diplomacy because at least in regular diplomacy, classic diplomacy, we can we do in fact talk to each other about moves and alliance structures, and we can sort of overcome the meta. In gunboat or speedboat, how do you overcome the meta if everyone else is playing a certain way? How do you play a different way and not get creamed? It's a real issue. And I do think that part of the and I have actually seen some negative side effects in the in the gunboat speedboat world of everyone playing with the same people sometimes. You end up literally doing the same moves over and over again. Well, guess what? That ain't no fun. I would encourage, and this is this is this is available in the speedboat world because of the number of players who are playing it. I would argue that seeking out different people to play with is a very, very good idea. And, and it, it applies in diplomacy, it applies even more in speedboat gunboat because you can't talk. So you're only moving, you're only making moves. Of course, you're negotiating with your moves. I get that. I, I totally understand that. But I, I do think that the dangers of groupthink are even worse in that setting. So people that play a lot of gunboat and speedboat, be very intentional about not becoming the ossified, desiccated skeleton of a gunboat slash speedboat player, but still try to remain a living, breathing, growing human being player. Uh, David, uh, user Parasite asks a similar question. Uh, says, I definitely agree with being spontaneous and creative, but do you believe a specific game mode gives you a better chance to flex your diplomacy muscles? Because Gumboat does not have press. Does that mean it's more ossified? I mean, I think it has the potential to be that way, honestly, uh, because sometimes in Gunboat, and, and I don't want to act like I know everything here, but I have played a lot of Gunboat in my time. <clears throat> Less Speedboat, but a lot of Gunboat. It, it, can, be, it can be very tempting to do openings that other people do so that you don't be perceived as having done something sort of unconventional or threatening to your neighbor. <clears throat> I mean, sometimes openings that we're used to, you you give it to somebody else and they're completely like, what the hell did you just do? 
I had a game I played in the Nexus Gunboat Tournament where I was Italy, and I went to Tyrolia, which, by the way, used to be the most popular Italian opening by far, was to go to Tyrolia. And then I took a shot at Munich. And the guy that was playing Germany afterwards, really reaming out about it, said, what is wrong with you? The, the Italians should never go after Munich. And you knew what my, I was getting my hackles up when he said never or always, because I'm like, man, you, no, don't start that with me. And his his argument was that that only hurt, helps France, which is bad for Italy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, man, first of all, in my experience in gunboat and in classic dip, the Italians taking a shot at Munich is entirely normal. It may not be normal in your experience, which is fine. Don't be telling me that it should never happen because in my experience, which is fairly broad, it is a totally normal thing to do. And what it means, you're not intending to hold Munich. You're meaning to turn that army that's useless into a fleet, which is not. So even if Munich gets taken back in 02, fine, you get rid of that stupid army that you didn't want anyway because now you got the extra fleet that you wanted. you got three fleets. So now you can do something cool because you took Munich and you took Tunis is the idea. So now you've got three fleets. Now you can do something cool against the French or cool against the Turks or both, and you couldn't do that before because you didn't have enough fleets. And he just would not listen to me. He's like, man, you are you don't know what you're doing. You should never play this way. Germany should never lose Munich to the Italians, and I don't want to play with you anymore. And I'm like, okay. And, and, and I'm not saying he was right or wrong in that particular game. I frankly don't remember, and it doesn't matter. The point he was making is wrong. The overall point that you should always do X or always do Y. Downside in gunboat is you don't have a chance to explain to people what just happened and why it happened. And so you end up not doing, not taking the chances, not doing the, the less conventional moves because you're afraid of the reaction. And that's a real danger if you play gunboat or speedboat that way because it's frankly less fun. Uh, right. You mentioned at some point uh, other countries were seen as better than France, and maybe I'm wrong in this perception, but it seems that most people think France is the strongest country. What was the meta like where where people didn't want to play France, or it wasn't at least seen as one of the stronger countries? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was seen as a weak country. It just was seen not as strong as England and Turkey, and it had something to do with the corner position. To be honest, I always thought that was wrong, that meta was wrong. When I got into the hobby, I immediately thought, well, France is clearly the strongest country because there's because of the options that France has and, and how difficult it is to crack that egg, even if you've got England and France, I mean, England and Germany and Italy all poking around. It's, it's, it still takes a while to crack that egg if you play France correctly. I think that's just an example of, and I've said this in interviews before, I do think the hobby has improved a lot since 1984 when I joined. And, and that's just objectively true. People play better than they did then. I think it was just an incorrect meta from the beginning. I'm not suggesting that France is always the strongest power in the auto. I mean, but, it, but it's certainly a lesson that we've all learned is the strength of France and how other players should be dealing with that is important. I'm not saying you should attack them. Sometimes the strength of France is good because they're your freaking ally. So the fact that they're strong helps you succeed. But my point is that the meta sometimes is just objectively wrong. And I do think, that, and this might contradict a little bit of what I said earlier, just because something historically was true doesn't mean that it was ever actually accurate, you know? And I do think that that meta was always wrong. And I think that one reason that we play better now, not just because of DBN and all that, it's such, such a recent thing, we still we don't really know yet how to evaluate the effect of that on the game. 
But since the game became an internet-based phenomenon, and since you had things like WebDip and PlayDip and Backstabber and all the other ones, it's just so much easier to play a lot of games now. It used to be back when I started, not to be the back-in-my-day guy, but I'm going to give you a back-in-my-day story. You played face-to-face or you played by snail mail, which I did a lot of. And those games, that, that frankly, for the time period, I had a lot of fun doing that. I was just thinking about the, the other day how I used to just run to the mailbox every day to see if the zine had come out to see if my attack worked or my stab worked or see if I got stabbed. It was it was a lot of fun. But it was much harder to play games, to play a lot of games in those days. And we all know that the more games you play, the better you're probably going to get at any board game, including diplomacy. And so I'm not suggesting that we might not know some things now objectively that are better than the way we knew things 30 years ago, because I actually I think that is true. But even the things that we think we know now, we need to be flexible and open-minded and realize that five years from now, we may think differently. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Are you familiar with that uh, Trivial Pursuit card that asked what the easiest country to defend in diplomacy is? I've heard of this, but I've forgotten what it was. What what did it say? According to Trivial Pursuit, the easiest country to defend is England. Yeah, okay. I I think I do remember that. Yeah. So Uh, I wonder if that that is specific to the meta of, of, say, 1981 or whenever the first edition of Trivial Pursuit came out. Yeah, that's 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 entirely possible. And I, you know, the thinking back in the day was that England was really hard to deal with because you you know they had the f- extra fleets. They 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 could keep you away from their island. And we all know that the answer to that is to get the jump on them, to get the Russians on side. There's all sorts of answers to that. So that is interesting. I was looking at the at the chat with you know Ed and Natty saying in the chat about how you've got. You know, established metas in different sub hobbies or in different parts of the hobby, and I think that's exactly right. But when my DixieCon crowd began to go to other tournaments in the mid '80s, we were shocked by the way people played. Sometimes good, and sometimes shocked good in a good way, and sometimes shocked in a bad way. You know, we, we actually did have a lot of AI friendship and lots of alliances and all that. And we went to tournaments, and Italy was almost always plowing into Austria as fast as they could. And Austria was worried about that, so they held in Trieste and all this goofiness. <clears throat> and I'm sure we were doing things wrong that other people, well, I didn't really understand how draw not include all survivors worked. Back in, back in my day, all the scoring systems were draw-based, so I apologize for that. But understanding one versus the other was 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 another part of the meta that I didn't quite understand. And, you know, while we're on the subject for scoring systems, that's another thing where the meta completely changes over time. You know, sometimes the what you think is the right answer is not the right answer depending on which scoring system you're in. And then you get into these scoring system debates where somebody wants to say that the only scoring system makes any sense is X or Y. And I'm here to tell you that you, you think that the ideas between Austria and Italy or between, you know, whether there's a, uh, whether England is the easiest one to defend or not, you think those things have changed. You you want to get into the world of scoring systems, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom of scoring systems has changed more times than I can count and will probably continue to change. I actually think that's a good thing, but it's just another example of how you shouldn't get stuck in one way of thinking. You should be open to other ideas. I just thought of something. Um, 
What about the idea of like, okay, there's been a lot of AIRs, right? So you're Turkey, you're at the beginning of the game and you need to argue against the meta, right? Um, uh, in that position or any other position. Uh, do you have any advice for somebody trying to combat the meta during in-game negotiations? You mean in the particular context of, of an AIR alliance versus the Turks? Well, I kind of was giving you the option to answer within that context, or if you had any, uh, I mean, I have my own ideas. I'm sure everyone does about what to do when you get into a game as Turkey this, these days, you know, but generally when you get into any position and you know that what you want to do is not the meta and you've got to pitch that to someone, that's a, a, a tricky position to be in, right? Because yep. the other person might be, you're kind of just starting from a disadvantage. Well, you know, one way that I have done that in the past is literally to pitch it as, wouldn't it be fun to try this? Wouldn't it be fun to try something different? Do you always want to eat the same thing or do you want to eat something different today? So I have I have sometimes pitched it that way. Wouldn't it be more fun? Wouldn't you have fun trying this new idea that I've got? Uh, and, you know, sometimes that doesn't work. But I, I do think that's a possibility. It's not... It's, it's, it's an argument that you could use that's not specific to the game. It's an argument you can use that's specific to the fact that people like variety in other parts of their lives. I mean, there are people that eat exactly the same thing every day. And most of those people are probably not playing diplomacy. But probably, if you're playing diplomacy at all, you're probably one of those people that enjoys doing different things in your life. And so one argument you can use is, let's try this different thing in your life and see, let's have fun with it. Because isn't it more fun to try new things? Because I think most people would answer that question, yes. Even if they are completely in the middle of groupthink meta, somewhere in the back of their mind, they realize that variety in, is, is the spice of life. So that's something to use. Yes, the idea that I'm going to engage Dave Molesky in a scoring system debate, which we've only been debating since about 19, you know, 1999 or something, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. So... I will actually use the word always. I will always avoid a scoring system discussion with David Molesky. All right, it's about one o'clock. In conclusion, then, I am arguing for something that is good for you anyway. You know, maybe you don't like this. Maybe this is the asparagus that you don't want to eat. But I'm telling you that it's good for you to be creative, to be flexible, and to be spontane uh, to be spontaneous. So. Just that lesson that's good for life is good for gaming. Uh, so I would encourage you to keep playing diplomacy, keep learning what other people do, but don't take it at face value. Realize that you may have some good ideas yourself. You know, the, you know how the meta gets changed? Somebody like you changes it. So don't think that someone else is going to be the only person that can do that. You can do that. Even if you're relatively new to the game, you probably have some ideas that will help improve our hobby and our game, and I encourage you to try them out. And those are my, and that's all I got to say about that, as Forrest Gump once said. You've been listening to Masterclass. To participate in future Masterclass sessions, please join the Virtual World Diplomacy Community's Discord server by following the link in the episode description. And remember to subscribe to the Diplomacy Dojo podcast for Brotherboard's Dojo, as well as future Masterclass recordings. Thanks to Frederick Larden for the music Robot is Chilling, used here in our intro and outro. <laughs>